Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, real life edition, and I'm joined by Genev Campbell. Genev is a expert on democracy. She is a prolific commenter on Twitter with a refreshing point of view these days. And we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, the intersection of sociology, of politics, of democracy, and SARS-CoV-2. Genevieve, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thanks, Benay. You know, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I, I, you know, I do have a master's in democratization theory, and that's been my entire career um, with U.S. government and um, with um, in academia, too. And so that's kind of the angle that, that I come at this stuff. And what's your Twitter handle? People have probably seen you on Twitter. Uh, Burger Bell. Burger Bell. And you have a devoted following. <laughs> I don't know how. I think as of December, I had like 200 people who followed me. And then just, I didn't at some point. I didn't. I don't know how exponential. Well, you're the expert in exponential growth. <laughs> Everyone is these days. <laughs> so I don't know how that happens, but I just mm-hmm. kind of like removed the filter that I had. Mm-hmm. In December, around December, I just you had just enough. over it. Yeah, you'd had enough. I just wanted to share how I felt. Okay, so. so let's talk about that. So I guess I'm wondering if we could just start by, you know, tell listeners a little bit about your background. I know you studied at Georgetown. Your interest is political processes, democracy. I wonder if you might take a little bit about your career trajectory prior to the pandemic. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I've um, studied and worked in um, democratization. I have a background in theory. And I worked mostly in science and technology policy as it came to be implemented by U.S. government-funded programs, uh, mostly overseas, your general uh, U.S.-funded regime change type of soft power stuff. Um, and right now, I'm, um, I'm a writer. I, I do freelance technical writing. And since my second daughter was born last year, have just like started using Twitter as a sort of journal for my, you know, uh, my coping mechanism for stress from mm. the pandemic. Well, that's, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly a favored coping mechanism <laughs> by, by a lot of people. Um, so I wonder if you might start by taking us through, why don't, why don't I just, thro- uh, just, just start with an issue. Um, anxiety among academics. You just tweeted today. Let's just start with here. I think because this is an interesting place to start. Um, you know, there, this was a morning TV show program, and they played a little video clip. And on the video clip, my understanding is this is in the United Kingdom, where first-pass vaccination has been very, very high, and the case rates are very, very low in the UK. Um, and uh, and this person 
um, one of the uh, uh, social media experts, you know, somebody who I think who gained a lot of prominence, not because of work prior to the pandemic, but because of social media use during the pandemic. This person was asked, um, you know, is it now okay for people to hug loved ones they haven't hugged in a year? And this person said, no. I haven't hugged my brother in uh, something like 16 months. And right now, variants, 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 you don't know what might happen, you ought not hug. Um, and you made a point about the certain personality types that are being perhaps disproportionately platformed on news outlets. I wonder if you might explain that point and, uh, and what leads you to that, that, that type of thinking. I think, you know, it's a hard one because these, you know, these media outlets are all competing for the same thing. They're competing for viewers, they're competing for listeners, they're complete competing for click-throughs, conversions, ad revenue. Ultimately, they want something that gets eyeballs. And, you know, nuance, kind of a measured approach is not going to get that. So I think that you're the type of people who, you know, day after day end up going on these TV shows are the ones who, you know, their producers, their producers know that that's going to be good for their ratings. And it's, it's kind of a problem. Um, it's kind of a problem that, that those people are the ones whose, whose voices are being kind of disproportionately amplified. And you believe that one of the features they exhibit, one of the things that generates attention is anxiety, uh, uh, depression. I'm not so sure about that. I do feel like we're kind of in this trap of, you know, the maximal display of of caution is what's, you know, socially validated right now. Interesting. So I don't know if it's necessarily depression or anxiety per se, but I do think, you know, it's this maximal display of of fear and that's kind of what's being rewarded socially and the more you display that the prudent thing is to you know absolutely isolate don't hug even after vaccination um i think you know you're rewarded in terms of i think uh there's an audience for that that's one reward but the other reward is there's a moral validation component to it i wonder if you might talk about that yeah i mean i think a lot of this pandemic has kind of veered at least in terms of our social response has veered into you know moral panic territory um kind of the thing the very human things that brings you joy those are you know the environments the situations in which you are spreading the virus but it's you know the more mundane but but likely much more um problematic environments you know people not having paid sick leave to go to work in a nursing home so they have to show up with a cough those are the type of things that we're not paying attention to um we just kind of gravitate to kind of being terrified of these like very human displays of joy i just think it's classic moral panic there was a recently a segment on Jimmy Kimmel Live where Jimmy sought to do the Lord's work and persuade people to get vaccinated who may be reluctant. And I believe the theme line was it was a bunch of healthcare providers and they said, you know what, you may not know all the ins and outs of vaccination, but we do. And quote, 
grow the fuck up and get the vaccine, end quote. Um, it received some pushback online from a number of parties, and, and including yourself, where you write, mocking, shaming, and condescension doesn't persuade. In fact, it does the opposite. This is damaging, counterproductive exercise in encouraging vaccination. And you know what? It is exactly the prevailing politics of contempt among American liberals and the broader left. So now I wonder if you might, if you might explain that a little bit. What makes you say that? I mean, I think you saw the same thing of just the, you know, the morning after the election in 2016 of everyone waking up and just being just just completely stunned that Donald Trump could win. Could win. You know, how is, you know, 48% of our country fascist? And it's like the lack of ability to kind of understand where people are coming from, just the inability to want to even kind of wade into that and just to kind of otherize otherize people and just assume that you know better than them it's just you're ultimately not going to persuade anyone of anything you may even deepen their convictions you're going to deepen their convictions like if you you know there were probably very few um i guess i don't know that for sure but it's it's you're not going to get people to you know change their minds by talking down to them and calling them an idiot it's just it's that's just not how it works that's just not how our brains work but we've seen that i think this whole year with the you know uh uh what was it uh wear a fucking mask and stay the fuck home or something was that wasn't that the the prevailing mantra of last summer yeah and i think you know if you want to lead from you know fear and guilt and shame that probably works in the short term but it's a pretty short-sighted approach because you know pandemics are not just like we snap your fingers and they're over like we've got we've been doing this for 14 months now in san francisco Um, you need something that's more sustainable and you know constantly shaming people is not sustainable it's uh you know it's 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 a tool that only gets so much you can only get so much out of i like having the muni train here it's really nature is healing Muni was shut down for almost a full year, so. You can already see, I think, um, you know, San Francisco, I, I've uh, I, I've driven through parts of this country throughout this pandemic. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people of, of the drive, I think when I moved out of, when I moved out of Portland and moved towards San Francisco, and um, this is a literally a true story. I left Portland, I think around 5.30 a.m. Um, at, at, at six, there was a bicyclist who I drove past. He was biking uphill, a very steep hill, full mask on. Um, you know, there was not a person in sight for a thousand miles. Uh, after I got about seven miles out of town, I didn't see a single mask. Uh, I stopped in the middle. I had lunch. It was like Mardi Gras. And as I got closer to the Bay Area, there was a mask, a mask, a mask. And as the frequency of mask increased, I eventually saw the Salesforce Tower. And so I knew I was headed the right direction. Um, but that is, I think, a, a telling kind of reminder of just some of the divides. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, a lot of our social response, you know, isn't isn't biologically necessitated. It's culture bound. It's a culture bound syndrome, frankly, um, just in terms of how we perceive ourselves um, vis-a-vis, you know, the threat from COVID, which is, you know, a very real threat. Um, but really where you are depends on how you think of it. And that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to play. Um, this this is this is something I wanted to walk through with you because I think you'd be an interesting person to play this game. Um, uh, it's for an article that I 
I'm almost done with. So I, I won't take too many of your ideas. No, it's, it's mostly done. But I'm kind of curious how you would think about it. Um, you know, I was recently reading a book. Uh, I guess I can disclose the book. Philip Roth's The Counter Life. Counter Life is a 1987 novel by Philip Roth where I think he imagines... Um, how life would have been if some things were different. You know, uh, the story that goes through the, the book is not is not logically consistent. Something happens to one character, later it's revealed it happened to the other character. Um, you, you don't know exactly which is the true story. But he's imagining what might have happened if. And I thought it would be interesting to play, we talk about the counterfactual in epidemiology, which is what would have happened if not for some intervention. It's often very difficult to know. Um, and I'm working on a piece called The COVID Counterlife. What would have happened if were it not for a few features? Um, so I wonder if you walk through these with me. So these are the ones that I thought about. What would have happened if we had the same COVID-19, but we didn't have social media? You want to go first? I'll tell you my thoughts. I've had a time to think about it. So this, yeah. you, you have no time to think about it. Okay, no time. No social media, no, no Facebook, social, no, no Twitter. Yeah. I think you would have seen more of an air gap between a health policy and kind of the you know, the democratic mob rule that we've kind of seen. Um, I think we would have had a more coherent, less panicked response to yes. COVID. So, uh, okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's funny you say that. That's exactly what I say. I say, I think a few things would have been different. The people who appear on CNN every night would have been different people. They wouldn't have been the people, we're in a park, so. <laughs> So we have a protester for our, for our plenary <laughs> session. But, um, uh, well, it's good to see him. And look, he's not wearing a mask, which is unusual in this city. But well, he must be one year and 11 of course. months and 30 days old. <laughs> because in two years, they have to wear and one. And they're going to give him his mask tomorrow morning. I see. I see. No exceptions, of course. Um, <laughs> even though the WHO and the CDC disagree. Uh, that, that's an interesting dilemma. Um, okay, so, so back to this. So the counterfactual. There's no social media. Here's what I think would happen. One, the TV experts are different. Um, they're different because instead of the people with the broadest platforms, it's people, um, likely they would have had to go into the bench. And by bench, I mean people who have a longer academic trajectory. So more department chairs, more people who publish. They might have to phone those people. They might find people they like, people who are good camera-friendly people, but it wouldn't have emerged through social media. I think it would have emerged more from op-eds. I think the op-ed scene, it's already a competitive market, would have been even more competitive in this alternate world. Um, but one of the major problems with COVID-19 was newspapers feature people with Twitter profiles who will then retweet the news story so they'll get all, at least all the clicks of that person um, and it would eliminate that cycle and so you wouldn't have as I think you call it the democ democratic mob rule where hundreds of thousands of anxious people if they like the um, you know the person who uses a lot of emojis in, and fear and caps lock in his tweets um, you know they wouldn't have platformed such a person it would have been somebody more traditional um, so I think we see that part eye to eye any any more thoughts on this I think that situation is really interesting because it kind of gives, you know, it kind of gives extra leverage to the institutional dynamics that yes. are already in play. And so, you know, you have years and years and years of research, and I think your institutions are going to be far more resistant to kind of throwing away... Um, Traditional th power. Yeah, throwing yeah. away their your previous consensus on things... Um, Kind of in a panic you're just you're gonna kind of hit the wall in terms of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable um policy wise i, I think and i think you're, you're right. gonna ultimately be, be more conservative more in the conservative, sense of yes. not trying yes. 
brand new, you know, whole of society interventions because you have the, like, institutions are inherently conservative. Of course. You know, the CDC, the FDA are institutionally very conservative and always have been. And, yeah, you kind of, like, lean into the, just, like, how slow those things move. That's a very interesting point. I I think you're right. And and by that you mean uh, to the degree to which a response is unprecedented, that would have been diminished. That would have been less. Um, There would still be a response. I also think, as you say, it will be more coherent. It will be less polarized. It will drive to consensus. I actually write in the article um, that you'll get Scott Gottlieb. You'll get Scott Gottlieb policy. You won't get, um, I don't want to name all the other people, but I mean, you won't get very draconian, you know, we all need to wear N95s, we all need to shut down everything, harder lockdown. You won't get that. You'll get a Scott Gottlieb response, which is throughout the pandemic, I think, been centrist, moderate, um, balancing, I think, individual freedom, business interests, but also the fact that this is a real problem and we have to deal with it. I think for better or for worse, I mean, I think that, like, there's a lot of downsides to having a super slow, you know, freighter style (laughs) institutional policy is you're not going to you're not going to make the radical changes that you need to even support people because that hasn't been done before. Mm. So you're, you know, not that we got it this time, but right. you're not really going to get, you know, expanded, you know, sick and dependent leave. You're not going to get the resources. the sort of social supports that you need just generally. Like, I, I do think, you know, you we did need radical change. We still need radical change. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that that would have happened either if we had leaned into institutions more. Well, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I think, and that's worth acknowledging, which is that was a failure of the current response. That would have still been a failure. Okay, let's do the next one. The next one, the next counterfactual. We didn't have Donald Trump. We had Barack Obama. It's COVID-09. It's not <laughs> COVID-19. Or it's COVID-99. We had William Jefferson Clinton. How would it have been different? Hmm. You know, I think Trump really broke a lot of people's brains. And so there was kind of that, you know, reflective opposition to whatever Trump says because he was a moron. Because he did just, like, say, you know, just fart out whatever happened into his brain at any given moment. And that just, you know... We had that reflexive opposition, and I don't think we necessarily would have had that with Obama. I think we, I think we would have, to an extent. This always, you know, we're such a broken country, we're such a polarized country. You know, no matter what the left said about COVID, the right would have opposed it. Right. And no matter what the right said about COVID, the left would have opposed right. it. Right. So I think it. That, the polarization wouldn't have been too much different, but I do think that Trump broke her brains to a degree. I agree with you. And I guess the only things I'll add that I was thinking about was, I think if Obama were in office, I suspect we would, we, and, 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 you know, the, the, and, and other parts were the same. Um, we, we would probably have embraced some of these restrictions, perhaps even more so at a federal level, in a way Trump was fundamentally and philosophically, I mean, that's the philosophical distinction, I think, between the right and the left, about the power and scope of federal government. Trump, you know, didn't favor using it. Obama would have. And I think what you would have seen, though, is on the progressive left, where a lot of people have become towing the line on restrictions without resources, I think they would have broken. And so you would have seen a schism in the academy. The academy, of course, leans left. Many more people in the academy would say, 
we are not comfortable with prolonged lockdown unless you provide resources. 100%. I also think, you know, it's so time dependent. I feel like uh, an 09 Obama versus yes. a 2013 Obama yes. where, you know, the progressive left at that point was so disillusioned yes. by him, you know. But yeah, no 09 Obama, I can imagine some this just shaking out in just a much healthier way, a much more sustainable way. Yeah, and even uh, if we took it to Clinton, 99 Clinton. No idea. Maybe not 99, maybe 96, <laughs> maybe 96 Clinton, because 99 he had been impeached. I was a child yeah. at that point, so, okay. you know. <laughs> maybe I'm dating myself. Okay, okay, we'll You're move like on. You're like a couple years older. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll, we'll move on, we'll move on, we'll move on. Um, um, okay, I like that. I mean, I think we're thinking similar. Okay, the next counterfactual I had, and this I think is the most fun, because I think this is the most damning. Let's see what you think. We had the same COVID, except the average bandwidth of the internet was one one hundredth of what it is now. And there is no Amazon, Uber Eats. There is no um, Lyft. There's no face. There's no. There's no technology that will bring food to your doorstep. There's no Zoom. So you're going to be laid off. You know, white collar workers are going to be laid off in mass. I, I mean, at least that's. So that's the hypothesis. No, actually. The premise is there is no technology that has been heralded as the salvation. How would it have played out? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, you know, this sort of paradigm of, you know, the public health apparatus kind of designates who is in a, the stay home class and who is in the, you know, the keep society going service worker class. And they kind of draw that line I think that that paradigm is only possible when you actually can conceive of doing it. And I think this would have been totally inconceivable 30 years ago. Completely inconceivable because you couldn't. Yes. Oh, I agree with you. So, I mean, the way I, the way I would articulate it is, to see if you agree with me, is that um, if, you, if you didn't have Zoom, you would have epic layoffs in Twitter, in Facebook, in Google, in Oracle, in Genentech, in every company around here. You'll have mass layoffs. People would say, we will, we cannot be laid off. We're white collar, we're upper middle class people. We can't tolerate layoffs like this. We will come back to work in some mitigated capacity. We'll, we'll wear masks, we'll alternate. You'll go on Tuesday, Thursday, I'll go on Monday, Wednesday. We'll spread out, we'll open windows, but we will have something. And what that means is I think everything dominoes from there. The workers will go back, especially upper middle class people. They'll realize that, you know, my health depends more on the poor person than it is if I can segregate myself with Uber Eats. I don't have a moat built out of Amazon Prime. I have to be in the same world with these people, so I'm going to have more an impetus to push for resources and better policies. The other thing is school will domino from it, I think, because school will be open because I got to go to work two days a week. They got to go to school. You know, I mean, people will say that. And so I think that in a way, these technologies actually were, I mean, I believe, it's probably the single greatest thing that trapped us to this response. A response where we could turn a blind eye to so many people and a response where we could shield ourselves. By we, I mean those of us who are of a certain class. I mean, I think, you know, we have to look at who's the ones, who are the ones ultimately writing these policies and making these decisions. And, you know, they're not even us, they're, you know, they're so fully insulated. You know, their children don't go to public schools. They don't even really interact with, you know, the service workers that stock their, you know, offices, fancy bougie granola bars every Wednesday. All those people that they laid off so their, you know, their employees can stay home and stay safe. Like, 
sorry. This stuff just gets me really mad when I think about it. I of like course. I start getting like really mad. I do too. And I think that one of the reasons why, uh, full disclosure, I mean, I think why we have seen so far, you know, we, we or at least I feel like I see very similarly to your, I feel like I feel similarly to how you feel is I think politically you and I are probably pretty closely aligned before we were talking, you know, you're somebody who has been a supporter of Warren and Sanders. That's where I fall politically. I've been there for a long time. You know, I've been there on, you know, I remember during this pandemic, there was some somebody who didn't like some of my articles. And he said, look at this guy. He's um, he's a right of center guy. But um, there's I guess there's some website that said, like, what news you follow. And he searched me and it looks like I'm left leaning. And he said, look, it's wrong because it says he's it says he's left leaning. Uh, he's a, he's right of center. And I was like, but I am left leaning. You know, I've written two books left leaning. I mean, everything I do is about the power of proper regulation, not irrational regulation. Um, but, but I, so I think that that's why it is frustrating to see that others who are supposed to be on this side of the issue don't see these as problems. Yeah, I feel like the left just went. <sighs> you know, so I've, I think if you think about what happened mid-March of last year, it was like immediately after, you know, Bernie Sanders was, was delivered the final crushing blow. Yes, and so there was blow. kind of a, a vacuum, a power vacuum on the left of like, where do we even go from here? And I think kind of leaning in to a kind of an incoherent COVID response was just kind of something that the left fell into just in a vacuum. You know, there, it was, it was really hard. Just like realizing that Joe Biden would be our president and just like what that meant. And they channel their energy into, I think, I think if I were to articulate the far left view of the response, it is shut everything down harder, wear a mask tighter, put another one on it uh, stronger, get just order Uber Eats. What's the problem? No, no discussion of resources, no discussion of paid sick leave, no consideration for the fact that it might not be easy for others. Close all the schools, shut everything down, and we'll just wait until a vaccine, which we don't know is coming, may never, may not come, at least in the time we didn't know. Um, you know, that was, I think, the, that was the view of the progressive left, which shocked me. It's just so shocking that we, we went into this, you know, we went into this not knowing, you know, we're so lucky that we ha had this vaccine within a year. We're so lucky. We went into this not knowing just how long we would have to do this, you know. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think people credit the pharmaceutical industry, and I credit them too, and I was their greatest adversary, and I still will, I will return to that as well. But, but I think the thing that people miss is, it's not just the pharmaceutical industry. They did a good job, yes. However, um, there's, there, there was nothing guaranteed about the fact that you would get neutralizing antibodies against this epitope. There's nothing guaranteed. There, there, it is possible you, would have, you wouldn't have been able to neutralize that epitope, this, this spike protein. And it's possible you would have had an ineffective vaccine. There was nothing predestined about an effective vaccine. That was the luck part. That was the lucky part that it worked out so well. And not just, not just a little effective, but a home run effective, which these same people try to downplay at every turn on earth, but how effective it is. Okay, wait, let me do the next one. The next counterfactual in my little, little op-ed. Um, you know, I write this column, so I gotta, gotta come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> I, every week, I got, I'm always feeling some, on Sunday I have a little bead of sweat because I'm like, gotta write to say something. Um, okay, you delete some people. Now, okay, here, what do you think? You delete, by delete, I mean, People believe <laughs> supremely uncomfortable with the this concept choice, of deleting. Delete. People okay, here. let's not say. No, I'm, I'm joking. Let's not say delete. Let's say. Let's say. 
There are many people who believe were it not for, and they name somebody, things would have been different. So I want to play the game of, let's imagine, this person didn't exist. They weren't even born. Okay, let's play that game. How would it have been different? Okay, and I have an opinion, but I want to know your opinion. Here are the people. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're on both sides. So Scott Atlas. Scott Atlas didn't exist. What would have happened? Um, the Great Barrington Declaration authors. The Jon Snow authors. Um, Tony Fauci. Um, Deborah Bricks. Um, and, uh, and, and the former CDC director, Robert Redfield. Um, these people at this level, you know, the, 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 middle, the middle cast, not, you know, not, not the president. Um, how do you think it would have played out differently, if at all? Uh, I think, again, I think we're too polarized to have a conversation where, you know, anyone with ties to the Hoover Institution is able to participate in the discourse, capital T, capital D, without that just being a complete red herring. So I think that stuff like that um, was just kind of doomed from the start. Oh, so I think I think <laughs> I, what I'm writing in the paper is that um, it would have played out exactly the same. You would have replaced these characters. They wouldn't, you know, people say, oh, Scott Atlas. Were it not for Scott Atlas, you know, X would have happened. No, it wouldn't. They would have been Scott Atlas Prime. They would have been Tony Fauci Prime. Yep. These are these people are forced moves in a broader system, a broader political system. If they didn't exist, they would have been replaced with a. There's a the bench is a thousand deep for every one of these people. G, GBD and Jon Snow, they're not um, policy positions that were promoted by individuals. They are inexorable <laughs> positions. I mean, of course, if you have a virus with a with a death gradient like this by age. You know, some 8,000-fold increased risk for old than young. Of course, somebody is going to suggest that the young people go back to work and the old people stay sheltered. Somebody was going to suggest that. It's inevitable. You can take J-Bot and put him away in a box. You'll get someone else to suggest it, maybe a, a week later with a different title. There are probably people advocating to get him and put him in a box. I think there are. Point, yeah. And so I guess what I want to point out to these people is you cannot be so angry with individuals. You miss the fact that they are exchangeable. You know, maybe the president, if you swapped him out with Obama, yeah, okay, now you're going to get a different policy as we already played that game. But if you swap out Tony Fauci, you'll get a Tony Fauci Prime. You swap out J-Bot, you'll get a J-Bot Prime. Um, these are more, um, this level of cast of characters is more interchangeable. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so that was my thought there. I mean, the Tony Fauci thing, I think yes. the longer, you know, how do you become a, a career-long civil servant? You know, the, the system rewards someone who just doesn't you know ever push against exactly yeah, exactly um you, you know how do you stay it, it reminds me of like the old company man of like working with Ford your entire life i mean he's he's 80 and he's been with this institution his, 53 his years entire life 53 years as and an adult yeah. it's just um you know you rise to that position because you defend and protect and advance you know the goals of the institution um and, and, and no offense yeah. to him because i actually like him a great deal i always say that it's actually true i actually do like him a great deal but i will say that no one should run an institution for 40 i mean i'm sorry that's just you can't put leadership has to have a turnover and i I'm not just critical of him. I've been critical of Collins, Francis Collins. He's had too many years. And too many years of Collins is bad for science. He has a certain set of priorities and a certain worldview. And that worldview is not the same in 2021 as it was when he was first NIH director. So anyway, I think we have to ask ourselves if, you know, the best system is a system where an 80-year-old is a key 
player on the world stage um, with a certain set of incentives has shaped his policy. I think it's really fitting, I think, for a, a gerontocracy like ours to have Tony Fauci as a, you know, the figurehead of this pandemic. Like, we have to have a boomer, you know, because we got to go back to the presidents of the, yeah. Okay, now here's the next one. I think this is a tricky one. I'm curious how you'll answer it. We reacted proactively in December 2019. You know, so much hand-wringing is over what we ought to have done in April of 2020. But I want to wind back the clock, back the clock to December 2019. What if, how could it have been different? We, we put a plane, on the plane we put everyone, experts in, from the WHO, and we flew them to the heart of Wuhan. And let's say the Chinese government cooperates. Would it have been different? Maybe this is outside your scope. I think more... it's outside of my scope. Okay. I'll tell you what I think. I mean, let's be frank. Most of this interview is outside of my no. scope. No. Uh, democracy and <laughs> politics as well as, yep. well as it is. Um, I guess I would say that I think it is easy and naive for someone to say, we could have stopped it in its tracks. Wherever it, wherever it arose, once you, knew, once you knew of it, which was a number of cases in, uh, I think the right answer is, this is the hardest one to play back. Um, it, it is possible you could have stopped in its tracks by just completely suspending travel much earlier. Uh, it's also possible that the, the horse had, had left the barn. So I actually don't know the answer. I think it's, it's one of the ones where I think people have a strong intuition, but I think your intuition has to be, I don't know, and that's the only scientific intuition. I mean, I feel like a lot of this goes back to, it, do you feel that this per- pandemic was wholly preventable? Yeah. You know, I feel like you answer yes or no on the, the flow chart, and that kind of <laughs> dictates you know, where you are, what camp you are in. You know, one of the things about variants that I always wonder about is, um, variants, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it has emerged as the, as the boogeyman, you know, the thing to worry. And I wonder, I wonder if I was at, you know, because people always ask me like, well, don't, what about variants? What about variants? And I was like, well, what is the, what is the probability? Like the numerical probability that a variant is truly vaccine escape. Like, and, and by vaccine escape, I mean like, um, you know, I would say less than 30% relative risk reduction of severe infection, okay? Let me give you some, actually, let me quantify this thing that everyone talks about, but they never want to fucking quantify. Okay, (laughs) they want to just talk about it. Okay, but I'm I'm willing to say, we know now we have vaccines with, you know, 99.9 some percent relative risk reduction of severe infection. Now let's put it at, um, I'm talking severe infection, not mild infection, which is not my my interest, but let's say it has a 30% severe infection reduction, which is still 70% severe infection. What's that probability? If you ask a lot of people who are very knowledgeable, they cannot tell you the probability. They're very poor. They can't even, I don't think they can even benchmark it to, you know, within an order of magnitude because it is a very, um, uh, it's a real thing to worry about, but it's also sort of um, uh, sort of somewhat ephemeral. It's hard to quantify. Uh, similarly, there's a probability that while we're talking about, while we're talking right now, there's a new pandemic flu that's emerging from somewhere we don't even know, right? Just a new virus entirely, right? What's that probability? And what I find interesting is we put so much rhetoric into one existential threat that we cannot really quantify. I've not heard a single person say, what if there's a new virus that jumps? Jumps from where? Oh, we don't need to talk about that, but it just jumps out into us. Um, it's interesting. It's just the fact that we can think about it. Rather, I, you know, that's what, I th- that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. That, you know, viruses do mutate. Supposedly. Yeah, all of course of, they do. Of right? Course all do. of them. Of that, is, that is a law of biology. Yes, am I, of course. Am I right? Yes, that is a law. Okay. And so, you know, viruses are constantly mutating all around us. And there is a theory that we get a new, you know, anything that pops up. Why are we not, you know, it's because this is salient. It's because this is what's in our brains, you know, like 
this is what we've been, you know, focused on for the last year. And it's really hard to kind of disentangle your own, you know, personal attachment to something and some subjects when you've been thinking about it constantly. And I, I, you know, it's, it's really hard for people to kind of make that relative risk, that leap, you know, it's just, it's kind of the problem of focusing just like the epistemology of looking at something constantly under a microscope, you know, a figurative microscope, you're aware of it so much more when those things have been happening around you always, and you hadn't really been thinking about it. So for instance, I, I think that's really well articulated because, because I never saw someone in 2018 walking around with a mask outside. And then if you ask him why, well, they're like, well, you never know when a pandemic flu is going to strike, you know, but yet now they'll say, so you never know about the variant. I was like, okay, well, you never know about the variant, but there's no evidence of the variant. The case positivity is super low. We're outside. We've never had any data for outside. Certainly outside. We can all agree. No bioplausibility either. Anyway, but you know, your point's well taken. It's the epistemology of it. It's more salient. Um, I mean, yeah, the, yeah, this whole thing is, I think, an epistemology project problem, at least our social response and not, you know, more so than, than other, you know, other social sciences, maybe. Okay. Um, um, I agree with you. You want to finish your thought? No, because it wasn't very well articulated. <laughs> and so I'm just going to stop it right there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just had something in my mind. And no. if I don't say it, I'm going to forget it. Um, okay. Here's what I wanted to ask you. Um, um, the academy and how they think um okay um i will tell you i've i've run afoul of people in a few times this last year where they got very mad at me very mad you know they take my screen they never want to like it's something strange about getting mad on twitter they never want to like actually engage with your the thing that you said that made them mad they want to screenshot it so that anyone who sees their contempt for you can never actually go and see what you actually said in the first place it's very interesting they want to shield their audience from what you actually said and criticize it simultaneously so the things that got me in trouble that now as we sit here in may what is it today may 9th may 10th as you sit here on may 10th um you know i feel entirely vindicated on uh in in january um you know i think i my piece was probably the first piece that said after you've been vaccinated you can throw away the mask uh you can you can relax restrictions uh and then i had a follow-up piece two weeks later and then you know five weeks later the cdc flipped flipped their you know flipped their switch uh, you can hug a loved one. You can relax a mask. Um, the other example was the J&J &J vaccine. You know, I, uh, I I said the moment I heard the safety signal, it's going to be frequent by it's going to be more common by one order of magnitude. Now we know at least one order of magnitude, and we still we'll still find out. Um, the EUA for kids. Wes uh, Pegden, myself, Steph Brawl, we wrote that thing just a couple days ago in BMJ. We were uh, uh, got a lot of heat. Uh, by heat, I mean you know people using I think. Uh, uh, insults. Uh, and then today it's announced that, you know, the FDA wants to uh, take a second, take a breath and have a, a drug advisory meeting about what should the bar be for emergency use authorization versus traditional approval in that age group, because the risk benefit profile is different. Um, so I guess what I'm interested in is the academy culture, which is that um, when, when you say something and you're the first person to say it, uh, it is very unpalatable. Three weeks later, everyone says it and acts like they knew it all along. What's what's going on there? I think that's just your your general, you know, structure of scientific revolutions. I think that's how consensus works. I think that science, quote unquote, is 
is social more than anything. Um, you know, getting agreement among experts isn't necessarily the result of something being empirically true at any given time. It's the result of, you know, group social dynamics and coalescing around that. And so, yeah, I, I guess I'm not surprised. That's just how, that's just how consensus happens. It's, you know. And acknowledging that, then what does it mean when people say, follow the science? I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a problem to kind of treat the science as some sort of rule book because like none of this stuff is the science. This stuff is all social policy that we are crafting in response to, you know, what the science is or is, you know, agreed upon to be at any given time. Like this isn't, <laughs> I feel like the whole, like the virus made me do it mode of, of democracy is, is, <laughs> is pretty chilling and I hope that's something we don't take with us from this pandemic. I hope that's something we can bury. Tell me more about that. Um, <clears throat> you know, I guess the question I have is, you're somebody who studies government and this is a heretical thought, but you know, is democracy the best form of government? I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether we can have precipitory democracy that doesn't devolve into a sort of mob rule in our age of, of modern mass media and our like the really sharp intervals of our panic economy, our outrage economy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if participatory democracy is resilient against against that at all and that's it kind of chills me but you know I feel like we've only had our modern media paradigm for the last 10-ish years you know and why do you say that because people are so easily led no I think it's that the speed of the speed of discourse happens so much quicker now kind of the intervals between our little mini outrages is just so much so much sharper and so much shorter there's so much churn and i don't think that i think that it creates an environment in which you can't craft coherent social policy you're kind of just at the you know the whims of the crowd it's funny you say that i mean that's an observation that i've felt which is that you know even in this small corner of medical twitter you know, five years ago, it was once a year that you'd hear of some scandal. Now it's once a week. Somebody said something. Somebody did a podcast and said something. Somebody tweeted. Somebody tweeted this. They tweeted that. They made a joke here. Somebody, um, you know, somebody that you don't even know that well. There's this story about them. Um, and it's just, and then it's in, it's the same pattern. 200,000 people, you know, not 200,000, maybe 1,000 people say it's bad. Um you know, amplify it, and then they get very mad about it, and then three days later, it's on to the next. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that the, the worst part of that this is that it's really self-perpetuating. I mean, you you kind of give attention to outrage, and that begets more outrage, and that, you know, in a democracy in which, you know, if you have consent of the governed, people demand... People demand, yeah. you know, that you 
kind of respond to that. So you end up getting these like layers upon layers of, you know, ever more incoherent policies stacked on top of each other. It's it's really the mo- it's the modern day mob rule that I think our founders warned us against. I agree with but you. But and I don't know how we escape that in our our media paradigm. I don't know if it's really possible at this point. And I, and I'm willing to even say that I, I I even doubt it's the like if you actually could count people, it's not even the mob. It's just the mob you see. Most people are in their house. They they're indifferent to the issue. I think it's just the people that call you know push for it are a tiny fraction of people. They're just incredibly visible on these outlets. I mean, this is the pro- I think this is another problem when you have the complete overlap of people who are making policy um, and people who, you know, were in the um, the socio like demographic cast, basically, um, of being most able to be shielded from COVID and from the pandemic. And the ones who are able to be at home tweeting, you know, between their Zoom meetings and, you know, with their nice dual monitor setups at home in their home office. Like, you know, we have, this is. I just have to make a joke. I always see these, somebody on Twitter and he's always like, you know, they're always like, um, uh, you know, some of us, we've been working so hard 24 seven, this whole pandemic, we are eager for it to end. And I was like, but you're working so hard. How'd you got a thousand tweets a day, buddy? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? You're on Twitter all the time. Yeah, what right? are you talking about? When I'm you like, why are you working so hard? You're on Twitter all the time. Yeah, if it weren't for um, I really got really active on Twitter this year when my second daughter was born and I started nursing again. I would just, you know, nurse her to sleep or nurse her, you know, because babies eat constantly. And whenever I would pick her up, I would just, you know, nurse her, pick up my phone, doom scroll. So bad for your brain. So bad. So bad. We're, we're like killing ourselves basically with this. Well, I've done some things to cure myself. <laughs> I, I, um, I don't look anymore. Um, and, and I actually have said it so that, I, I don't know if I should reveal this, but you know, I mean, you're probably getting to the point, like you're probably getting to this point as well, which is that you'll get more replies to your thing than you can even read in a day. Um, and so I just said it to that, if you reply to me and I don't actually follow you, I never even see it. Um, it like doesn't even show up on my screen. And then, then the second thing I do is I don't even look, you know, like I'll just say, I use it as outgoing mail only um, because I don't want to be, I don't want my own thinking. And this is the thing I think about experts, at, at least when it comes to health policy and, and that I see on TV and writing these things is that I think they, uh, you, I'm gonna actually give you another thesis that I haven't written up yet, but I'm thinking about writing up. Um, uh, I think there are many people who, who want to be heard and there are a few people who have something to say. And let me draw the distinction. I think something happened in the zeitgeist, in the culture, where, you know, 30 years ago, it was enough to be a doctor, a professor. That was a very noble thing. It's not enough anymore for a lot of people. They want to be, you know, heard. They want to be on TV all the time or have, you know, their voices broadcast, you know. They're always begging. I see them every every month. I'm at 999 followers, get me to 1,000. You know, I was begging for, I was like, don't, nobody wants to follow you out of pity. You want a pity follow? I was like, what is this, pity following? No. I was like, if you have something to say, the people who are interested in that topic should gravitate to you, and they will with time. And if you don't have something to say that's not that interesting, I think it'll also work itself out. You know, Um. anyway. Um, I, I think that's symptomatic of kind of just like the general elite overproduction, you know, to use Peter Turchin's phrase, um, of, you know, 
this isn't enough anymore. Yes, that's right. Yes. Like, credentials aren't even enough anymore. And so we kind of are creating kind of this like parasocial super credential on top of that. Yes, which is your, your influencing standing. And then, you know, and then the other thing I love was they say, um, they're like, oh, um, so-and-so shouldn't have said this because um, they have a big platform. I was like, well, you know, even the people who have a big platform who I despise, they, you know, they're pretty consistent usually with their fear mongering or et cetera. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, okay, so I mean, they're people who want to be heard and there are many. And there are a few people who have something to say and that's a very different skill because having something to say means you look at an issue and without the influence of others, you try to minimize their voice in your ear. You try to think about it your own way. Um, and that's actually why I like, I like Wes a lot, Pegnan. That's actually probably why I like your account a lot. Um, uh, but, but I'll use Wes for this example because I think Wes is somebody who, you know, he doesn't have a lot of, um, prior to pandemic, he's not in the field of biomedicine uh, thinking about this. He's approaching with first principles. He, I, I see he doesn't let himself be led by anybody. He has a lot of heterodox views that span one side or the other on different issues. Um, and he's always one of the people who, when I look through his feed, every once, you know, not all the time, but many times I'm like, ah, I didn't think about that, you know? I think I told him as much when he came on the podcast. Um, I, think that, I think that's one of the problems with the social media environment. I think that groupthink now is, you know, I think we just fall into the groupthink trap so much more now because we can we can read each other's social signals so visibly and we're constantly signaling to each other. Um, you know, group dynamics used to form, you know, over a longer period of time, you know, through in-person interactions and who's, you know, working with who and who's talking with who. And now it's, you know, who's responding, who's commenting on who's like tweets. And that's, it just allows you to kind of visualize groupthink. And I think that ossifies the formation of multiple groups much quicker than we've ever had before. Mm. I really don't, I think this is an intractable problem of modernity <laughs> generally in terms of, you know, our, our media ecosystem. We're, we're going to become more and more tribal. Some, it's just happening. Society will break. I don't know. I think we're moving towards basically, I think you see it in the U.S. Like you have two separate realities. There are two, there are two Americas right now with not with, you know, vastly different results in terms of COVID, but just like in, in terms of the way that they're living and experiencing life, it's totally different. Hmm. Yeah. I think we're, you know, remember that Barack Obama, we're not red America and we're blue America. I, I think unfortunately we really are red and blue America. Yeah, and we're, it's totally geographically, it's culture bound. Then, and and uh, I guess I guess the second question will be, can we save it? But the first question is, what can an individual do? Uh, what 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 should you or I do if we want to escape? At least, at least, you know, what is, what is at least flatten the curve of, of having to deal with this problem, right? I think the group thing thing thrives on preference falsification and yes. people, you know, okay. expressing one thing. Um, despite, you know, privately holding another opinion um, because they want to, you know, they want to, you know, keep their job, keep being seen as part of the in-group because it, it matters to them because they have to institutionally. They want, you know, connections and friends and they don't want to be shunned in real life or, you know, lose those professional advancement opportunities. So I think it leads to kind of a, a dynamic in which people express comfort with one thing but privately feeling some other way and I think that something that people can do is just 
try to express your own true opinion. Like, it's okay if you supported Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, like, believe that what San Francisco has done has been, you know, you know, in terms of keeping public schools closed. Just yeah, anathema. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I would say the fact, I mean, I, what you're saying very much resonates with me because um, how many emails I get, you know, because I, 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 I write these columns and I get so many emails and it shocks me when one of the objections to our thing in the BMJ about the EUA was, oh, they should have asked a pediatrician to do this. And I was like, my inbox is full of pediatricians, pediatric infectious disease specialists, and some people who are super high up who agree wholeheartedly, but I'm not the kind of person who's gonna, you know, I don't know, out them in terms of their beliefs. It's up to them to out themselves in terms of their beliefs. Um, uh, but so your objection that it is something about this field that ha would have changed the outcome is false because I can give you 15 pediatricians who've emailed me. Um, and it's such an arrogance, actually, I think. I mean, because, you know, this very same people who play the credentialism game are happy to cry foul when, they're, when their lack of credentials are pointed out to them. Um, um, the thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, there's one, there's some people that, uh, that get my attention. One is somebody who's a, a noted fear monger, um, has, his, has run for office in the past. What's this person's game? You know... It's hard out here. I think you've you've really got to hustle, and I think we've seen that there's clearly a market for panic porn. It's like, you know, respect the respect the game at this point. I right? guess you build a following. We'll see if it can translate into political success in the future, which it might be the the end game. I think that's definitely the end game here. It'll yeah. be curious to we'll see curious. how that holds up. But yeah, I don't know. I mean. And then the next... It's the, hard out here. People are just trying to get by. By by, you mean more attention? Yeah, just make something for themselves. Yeah. There's, I think we've just had a just general lack of meaning, societal lack of meaning. I agree. And that's why some of these things take on religious dimensions. Yeah. But, but, you know, people want to make something of themselves. But, you know, the one thing that they that I find an infrequent means to make something of yourself is like the old mantra of trying to get better at your craft, that's like not on the list of things the way you can get, you know, get ahead. It has to be all these other things. You want things handed to you. You don't want to actually get better at your craft. Um, okay, what about somebody else? Um, and I don't know if you'll know who I'm thinking of. Um, this is somebody who is one of the most ardent proponents of self-restriction, critical of others who would engage in dinner parties and things like that, you know, to all degree. I mean, at the end of the day, this is, what are you talking about? You're doing something to a primate. Primates need human, you know, they need social connection. There's only so much different people can take. And just as some people get hungrier than other people, some people have more need for human interactions and they're going to break at a different point. And they're gonna, you know, sneak out, go on a date, meet a loved one, those sorts of things. It's just natural. I mean, it's inevitable in a free society that that would happen. This is somebody who broadcast loudly and clearly that they are above all that. They're not gonna, you know, partake of these social gatherings. Um, and, and then I saw the person was tweeting about, um, you know, uh, some medical ailments they're suffering from, um, disturbances in, um, you know, their day-to-day -day life, sort of a young, healthy person. And I couldn't help but think that a connection they may not be making is that this is a manifestation of their own anxiety and, and, the, and the consequence, the anguish of having imposed, self-imposed restrictions on themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, what if, what if society, except we're not, you know, in a room breathing together is not sustainable in the long term. Yeah. Um, 
it's just it's not how humans it's not how humans function you know this is I think we're turning you know hundreds of thousands of years of you know human development on its head and trying something so novel of you know keeping people away from other people for 12 plus months it's never happened it's never happened before this is this is a wholly new experiment that we're running and I I wish we would be honest about it because maybe it's the right experiment who knows but I wish we would at least be honest that we don't we really don't know there's been so much certainty like the hubris the hubris of this whole thing is just it's just wild to me I guess I mean it's 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 a it's a related question which I think is that um you know, there's always going to be cheating on the margin. You're keeping people away, and some people you're keeping away very aggressively, and other people you're not keeping away that much at all. And and then the question is, your question, the core of the question, which I think is unanswerable at the current time, which is, you know, are we better off as a result of the policy? And that depends on whether or not the cheating was enough to swamp the uh, the sacrifices made by other people. Um, and and it is quite likely under many, and that might be different in different places based on the you know the conditions at the time. Uh, but if it is the case that the cheating swamps the, the the sacrifices made by others, then the problem is not. I mean, you can say the problem is the cheating, but that's the human nature part of it. The problem is that you shouldn't have been um, railing on people to make the sacrifices. I think, or you should at least try to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, if if something works in a you know, a sterile computational epidemiological model, it doesn't mean it actually works in terms of when you apply it to human society and human behavior in real life. You know, I remember those models that were socialized at the beginning of the pandemic that were, you know, just, we are just nodes. We are simple blue dots bouncing around bouncing off of each other and every time we bounce off of each other that's an interaction and you know, we're living, breathing human beings with life and with birth and death and just the messy the messy realities of human life and that's not I think to go from point A to point B like the the physicist biostatistics model no offense to your profession of (laughs) (laughs) but just you you lose the humanity you know we're more than just endpoints we're more than just nodes sterile computational nodes i agree with that but i'm also i also want to make the empirical point that if if we were as simple as the model the model would be more accurate and as far as i'm concerned you know people always talk about uh, they say some things that annoy me um it doesn't matter if the model is right it matters if it's useful i was like what the fuck are you talking about what matters is if using the model you make a policy decision uh and was that a wise decision has something to do with the veracity of your model and as far as i can tell Everyone has a model for everything, and everyone has a story to tell you of why one country did better than the other. But no one has a model that will explain all of the observed phenomenon. And until you do, you don't really have a model. You have a just-so story. You're Rudyard Kipling telling me why this, the giraffe's neck is long. Um, you don't really have a model. And I think having some humility to acknowledge that is good. Um, you know, I heard some of these people complain that they're like, I hope this pandemic teaches us that we needed to invest more research dollars in these blue dot models. I'm like, I hope this pandemic teaches us to throw these models in the trash can. But I mean, there's been such an absence of social scientists and sociologists and, you know, just philosophers generally in crafting social policy. You know, this has been revenge of the nerds in the worst way. <laughs> now, um, once you get vaccinated, restrictions on people um you had a funny one april 19th a new york times opinion article entitled it's time to scare people about covid and then new york times article from many months later irrational covid fears 
<laughs> and you said how it started, how it's going. Right. New York Times edition. This is like being at the pearly gates and St. Peter's. Go- he has his phone out and he's going through my Twitter history. <laughs> and I'm being judged. <laughs> Positively. <laughs> Twitter is a place to judge. Twitter is a place to signal. I wouldn't be on it if it weren't, you know, the place where journalists hang out. Yes. Okay. Unfortunately, so that's where that's where that's where consent is manufactured autonomously. <laughs> to answer your question about one thing, which is um, preference falsification, I would say um, maybe five or ten percent of my beliefs I've I've held back a little bit, um, but eighty ninety percent I've put forward. And the 5% I've held back on, it's because we have articles under submission that are much more rigorous formulations of it. Not that I'm going to hold back forever. And I'm thinking about writing some something more on that topic. But I guess I would say, personally, I think that's the single most important thing an individual can do. And so, you know, every time people email me that I agree privately, I always encourage them, just say it. Just say on Twitter, I agree with these people. It will actually carry a lot of weight because I'm going to take that and throw it in the face of a few other people. It's funny. Once I um, took the, you know, the proverbial mask off in December and I started tweeting, like, what I actually felt. <laughs> proverbial mask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the problem because we have physical masks that right. we are currently, you know, wearing right now. Of course, obviously. <laughs> and no. I don't want to be accused. No, actually, I don't even want to pretend. I don't even want to take yeah, that. I don't, I don't yeah, even want to say. I don't even want a quote of me saying, like, mask off. This is the problem. Oh, you're so, scared to say that. No, I mean, this is the problem with the Overton window is yeah, like yeah. When, you're wanna... on, when you're on the edge of it, as we are, when yes. you're on the edge of the window, you have to be really careful. You, you must not defenestrate yourself. Well, you know? I'll just say I, I, I don't believe in outdoor masks. I'm not wearing one now. Well, and, I've, well, and if you ever find yeah. it, and I don't think you'll ever find a photo of me. If I mean, unless somebody Ooh. snuck up on me. I want to be, I want you know, there are always people who proudly, remember they tweeted those photos of them running? Oh God, these photos, they really pissed me off. I'm like, this one guy tweeted a photo, he ran a marathon outdoors, a marathon distance. I'm like, you're not helping anyone. You're just acting like a, like you're so much better than everyone and you're doing something that's irrational. Why don't I take a photo of me slaughtering a goat on the sidewalk to ward off bad omens, you know? That's as good as what you're doing. And so why are you proud of doing something that doesn't make sense? You should be embarrassed. I really think you should be embarrassed to do something that doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you're a person of science. Oh, so like what, the wearing your mask outside thing. I think people really cling to it because I feel like there's this urge to kind of overcorrect because there's been so much just batshittery on the other side about, you know, 5G COVID is a hoax. Hopes. Bill Gates is, is going to, you know, plant a microchip in my brain. All this stuff. Like, this is a big plot. From George Soros but to I take was, over the world. Like, well, yeah. I don't know. Bad like, shit stuff. But I would say Wes said it right, which is that, um, you know, if you if you let your views in any way, shape, or form be dictated by the batshit crazy fuckers on the other side, you are subordinating your rationality to being the antithesis of their batshit. And what that means is you are not doing a good job. In fact, so the example he used was the thing that we were critical of the pediatric EUA. And our point is that adult, yes, emergency use authorization in adults makes sense. It is an emergency of unprecedented proportions. In children, not so much. It should seek traditional marketing authorization. That's a higher safety standard. Um, but people were saying, well, your article, some of the people who like it are the most ardent uh, anti-vax people. And he said, so what if they like it? I can't not speak the truth because there are cra- a few crazies that may like the occasional thing I say. You have to pursue the truth. And similarly, 
masks outside. Look at we just look around. They're all wearing them fucking masks. Why are they doing it? And they can't be dishabituated out of this. Yeah. I mean that was a problem with last spring because those you know, those people who spoke up for, you know, more measured, sustainable, long term yes. policies, things that, you know, focused on huge super spreading events and not like a, a zero tolerance abstinence only policy like in San Francisco where you couldn't even meet one person outside um, or all playgrounds were closed oh God, until yes. October and they removed the swings I saw like every other swing was our, removed our I had a baby last year but our baby swings at our park were zip they someone went and zip tied from some from the city they zip tied every baby swing together so you couldn't put your baby in it it's just like what like what that that's a that's a zero tolerance approach which is you know it's it just doesn't make sense but the problem with that was conflating any sort of opposition to that sort any sort of nuanced call for you know measures that were more sustainable and that were more humane got lumped into the you know the anti-lockdown protesters this spring um uh you know the people in michigan with the ak-47s and the you know gadsden flags just like telling people that you know don't tread on me. It's the libertarian types who don't believe we should have driver's licenses either. And being lumped into that sort of category with those people, it just, it made, you know, any sort of call for nuance, just a complete political non-starter. And that's, it's just such a bummer. I think that's well put. Um, okay. My last one of my, I'm going to play tomorrow, uh, maybe tomorrow, the day after the article come, um, you know, the counter life, what would have happened if was, um, you know, there's an, there was an early schism in, in Europe, and Margaret McCartney wrote an article for the BMJ where she said, for non-pharmacologic measures, you should randomize. And what she said was, you know, um, we, we now were so sunk into it, masked, where they work, when they don't work. I certainly think outdoors, they've never had a shred of data. But is it possible under some circumstances? We're sure it's possible. What are those circumstances? I don't know. Um, are there other things one might have done? You know, like if you go to the grocery store here, it was easy to wear a mask. I don't see anyone wearing face. It was a low. There were some face shields, but low face shield use. Um, we could have done some cluster randomized trials. That was Margaret McCartney's thing for non-pharmacologic interventions. I actually think it would have shut everyone up. The people who don't think it does anything, what do they call it? The face diaper. They would have shut up if you show them an effect size. You know, if you show them in a randomized cluster. Maybe not all of them. No, I don't. <laughs> maybe not all of them. But at least some of them. Maybe some. Maybe some of them. Um, and, and certainly it would be sort of the, the ultimate trump card to just throw and say, well, here you go. There's, you cannot ask for better. Um, uh, the, the people who, who uh, believe it doesn't work, also there's possibly under some circumstances they'd be vindicated. Uh, we didn't do those studies. So my counter-life scenario wasn't that I have the answer to the study. It was just that we did the studies early on. We organized and we did this stuff. And what I think actually is the way to diffuse some of the, politiz the polarization of the issue is to do the study that will make one side be vindicated, one side be frankly wrong. You 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 don't okay. Now we we might find attention. I, I don't think so. Really. <laughs> I, I think that there's. I think that you can, yeah. I think that you can craft studies that show what you want to say for of pretty course. much anything. No, I know that to be true, and that's in why the hard sciences and in social sciences. I, I, I mean, not to say you know science is real. The earth is flat. It isn't real. The earth is flat, but. I think it's really easy these days to be able to argue from, you know, a, a point of scientific authority, whatever you want to say. I, I, I don't disagree with that claim, actually. In fact, I'm a big believer in it. And um, 
there was one person who shall not be mentioned once wrote a paper called the import the potential importance of data that doesn't exist and the point was that for some hot questions there's so many data set out there and so many people probing the question that some people on Monday got one answer some people on Tuesday got another and the end product that we believe quote unquote the scientific consensus is nothing more than what you think can get published and what is plausible and it is that sort of consensus that's the filter you're applying to a range of results that span one that span all things so i agree with you i actually think the beauty of randomization and these sort of really large well-done studies is that it's the one thing in our entire human existence that you just you you can certainly bias it in fact i've made a career on trying to articulate those biases but if it's big enough if everyone agrees a priori that this is the right design, it can blow up in your face. Like, I mean, one of the reasons why you can't be so gamed is it's blown up in people's face and giving them the counterintuitive answer a lot of the time. And so, so I guess I, I agree with you in general. And I think that's what we're gonna see in the next five years. I do think that there was a way to have done these studies that would have shut people up on either side of the issue, depending on what the result was. I think consensus moving and consensus shifting happens as like a, a longer term accumulation of these sort of things and is so social that I, I I don't disagree with you that you can make the you know you can actually learn the answer yeah okay but but you disagree that it would, it would have done anything in the short term I don't really yeah I don't really think so I think I'm just such a pessimist in terms of how you know in our age of uh, like our monet our modern you know, media economy, how scientific consensus happens. It's so slow. I mean, look at the CDC and aerosols, which is, it's May yes. 2021, They're and they still... just acknowledged it this week. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, I, at my, at our YMCA pool, they give you a face shield when you're in the kids' pool if you're treading water or if your head's above water. A face shield? A face shield. The San Francisco YMCA, if you're in the kids' pool, how does that how does that stop the COVID? that's a great question and you know these are institutions does it go in the water right uh does no it... not if you're underwater this is just for the the kids pool if you're an adult in there so it's about three feet deep so oh, in theory you're standing up i see and they I give see. you a ymca issued face shield oh, interesting does yeah. the tip of the shield touch the water no, no i see the water I'm, comes yeah, when i'm holding my daughter it does not oh fascinating <laughs> Well, keep COVID at bay. So what I'm saying is the institutions move so, so, so slowly and scientific consensus, unfortunately, is so social and those things move slowly too. And, you know, I don't know. I'm like such a pessimist about this stuff after I've seen just, you know, our, our um, neighborhood little... Yes, I saw it. Play space is reopening and they like hydrofluoric they acid just, or something. They <laughs> just and they're closing at every one to two hours to spray the and all the surfaces down with an electrostatic sprayer. It's just to you know, I, COVID. I wish they would, you know, open the windows. And slaughter a goat. Yes. <laughs> and they have to slaughter the goat. A nice salt circle would be good too. But just open the damn windows of and course. get rid of the electrostatic sprayer. But it's like these are the things that are happening because of how quickly like how you know how slowly things actually move but it, it's also like for for 10,000 years in the face of a plague human beings have done irrational things and this is no different yeah, why, oh yeah. same medieval brains yeah. new social media what this is what you get okay so last question because our time is up but um, yes you are you have been pessimistic this whole conversation but accurate that's <laughs> you know it's the nature of the beast um, my question is this uh, what, what what do you have any grounds for optimism or at least what what makes you go out there and tweet your opinion what do you you don't have anything to gain from it 
Yeah, I have nothing. I have nothing to get. I don't even have to get my kids in school because they're too young. Like they like we're in a cooperative preschool that's been running the whole time. That's parent run. You know, we're doing it ourselves. Like. So you have no. So these issues, you know, to some degree, you're insulated from it. Oh, but of course, no I more. I think than I was else. just so kind of repulsed that people who I saw on the American left, like fellow Bernie and Warren supporters just kind of doubled down into this stuff and no one was speaking their mind. And you know, I've had like dozens, more than dozens of doctors DM me on Twitter and say, I wish I could say what you're saying, but I believe it a hundred percent. And the fact that this is a climate in which some random ass mom on Twitter who's nursing her kid and that's what she uses Twitter for is like a journal to let off steam is like kind of expressing things that, that, big name people are afraid to say out loud this is like this is a broader cultural problem that we're dealing with just in terms of being shouted down for having an unacceptable opinion and so like my thing is I just want to try to push the envelope and what's you know what's acceptable discourse so funny you say that actually because that's my thing too Actually, uh, you're we're standing at the edge of the Overton window, and I, <laughs> I, uh, I also like you. I get a lot of emails, a lot of emails, and phone calls, and DMs, and all the actually no DMs. I closed it because I'm there's too many people coming. I can't, I couldn't deal with the DMs. Like so, no more can send me DM. But emails, I get a lot of, and I get a lot of things from a lot of people who, if people knew who all the people were, they'd be like, oh boy, you know, that's 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 interesting. Um. And, and like you, I think um, there are many, I mean, you know, so I, I, was, I was trying to think like what draws me to certain, you know, to write on certain topics. It's, I think they're, they're, it's rationality failure. I mean, like I'm interested where people who are purportedly smart are holding the irrational view and you can kind of show it to them. And one of the things I'm not interested in is people like to point out rationality fa- failure among the irrational. That's not a hope. That's not a useful strategy, actually. In fact, I've written about that. If you keep showing irrational people why they're irrational, they'll never see the error of their ways. But if you show a rational person where they made mistakes, a few of them will acknowledge that, yeah, we were wrong. Um, that's how I think about cancer medicine, and that's the kind of work I do in that space. It's also how I think about, and I tried not to comment about COVID for many months, but I was dragged into it just like you reading too much, one too many tweets by those who shall not be named that broke my spirit, um, so I had to comment. Um, but yeah, this is a knowledge problem, just generally. This is a you know a scientific knowledge issue and an epistemological one. I don't know how we get out of that in our like fractured media environment. You know, I, I, I don't have, when, you know, those who are mediating the discourse are profiting from, you know, outrage within the discourse. I don't know how we get out of that. I think the only viable solutions I see are the social media companies, I think, in retrospect, 50 years from now, will be viewed like we view Philip Morris 50 years ago. Like engaged in practices that were, anti- you know, you talk about your health, like doom scrolling, that stuff. I mean, literally, they'll be viewed the same. They're engaged in addictive practices. They know their be, they're, they know their business is addicting you to look at it. And what they do is they show you shit that will anger you. So I think in retrospect that they have to be broken up or treated like the tobacco industry, pushed to near extinction. And then I think the way to solve the media landscape is, I think, and this is a, this is this is my real color showing. I think the federal government should have to pick a few impartial channels and give money to, like we once upon a time funded NPR and PBS and those sorts of things. Um, 
And I think even folks on the, uh, the other side of the political spectrum who have hitherto been resistant to that will someday see the value in that as their side gets even more crazy, drawn to you know conspiracy theories and craze. Um, if I had, if I were in charge, I think I would I would delete I would break them all, Facebook, Twitter. I think they have to be destroyed. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I don't want you know the tech monopoly monopolies bro like broken up before we kind of regulate the internet itself as public infrastructure, but. On like the application layer, yeah, absolutely break them up. Like, I don't see, I don't see a, a good future for this country without one, without that happening. I just don't. I don't either. Genev Campbell, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Vinay. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.